This talk was given by Ron Hogan Green Sensei at the Zen Center of New York City. Hogan Sensei is a lay teacher in the Mountains and Rivers Order and co-director of ZCNYC. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you'd like to make a donation or find out more about the temple's retreats and residency programs, visit our website at zmm.org ccnyc. Thanks for listening. Good evening, everybody. So trick or treat, this is your trick. And uh, maybe it's your treat. So this is the last of um, academic study at the temple. Um, this is the third noble truth. We've covered the Eightfold Noble Path in the first two and other pre- previously. Um, so I also want to um, invite you to ask or explore any issues or questions of the whole path. Uh, and um, perhaps you've been um, doing some reading uh, or study. I hope so. Uh, this is the basis of everything we do is here in these four noble truths. Um, and they're all entwined. Uh, so although we study them one at a time, you really can't separate them out, uh, looking at them as the path from suffering to freedom from suffering. And um, So the third noble truth is the truth of cessation, of stopping. You know, the first two is kind of the bad news. Uh, life is suffering, or dukkha. And the second, the, the cause, is desires, attachment, um, our sense of separate self. And then the third and the fourth are how to address it. And so the third is the truth of cessation. And the implication is that through our actions, uh, through the uh, our, our actions, meaning the, pre- the precepts, in effect, that living by the precepts through samadhi, through the quieting of the mind, the deepening of the mind, and through wisdom, the non-dual wisdom that comes out of samadhi, uh, the, the karma and disturbing emotions that we generally live out of or encounter or struggle with uh, can be seen into and let go of. And that's the basis of it. And we have um, power over suffering, our suffering, because of karma. Uh, and karma is cause and effect uh, in its most simplified form. And we create the causes and the causes have an effect. Uh, We experience those effects. And because of the cause and effect, we can put an end to our suffering. It's that simple. By um, working within what we do, what we say, what we think, which is what creates karma. Um, And by 
working with that and practicing with that, we can both decrease the amount of suffering we have, we cause ourselves and others, but also awaken to the fundamental truth, not also, but it's the same thing, actually, um, of who we are and thereby address the karma of our life. And because of this, we don't have to depend on anybody else to remove the cause of suffering, independent of whatever our life is. And again, suffering is different than pain, although they definitely overlap. But there's no way to stop pain or uh, joy that every person who lives will experience some measure of both. Um, and so the suffering the Buddha was talking about was primarily the, the subtext of anxiety that we live as, as our mind, which increases, of course, as, the, as, our, as our life goes on and we um, attach to what we classify as good or bad or indifferent events of our life. And we're talking about our daily moment-to-moment life as well as the arc of our life. And the, because the fundamental truth is interdependent, it's one whole body, which is us ourselves. If we do uh, what you might call unvirtuous actions, then we're creating suffering. It also means if we abandon unvirtuous actions, we remove the possibility of experiencing suffering in the future and in this moment. And so what we experience is entirely in our hands. And that's an interesting question. You know, do you buy that? Do you believe that? How do you understand that? Um, and that, that's important when you look at blame, responsibility, uh, contribution t- to difficult situations. I've said many times before, I've never seen a difficult situation between two parties or two entities in which either party did not, both parties did not have some contribution. And that extends in some ways to even where it's completely apparent that one party did nothing to contribute to uh, that particular situation. But there is some, there's always something, no matter how slight or how indirect. Um, and that's, that's our responsibility, whatever part that is, that's our responsibility. Um, from a fundamental truth, from a fundamental basis of how the Buddha taught, the end of dukkha, the end of suffering, is nirvana. And nirvana is beyond grasping and control and beyond conditional experience, existence rather, I'm sorry. And nirvana, one definition of Nirvana is the mind like fire unbound. And that's, that's an interesting 
perspective. Our mind, your mind, like fire unbound. And the realization of nirvana is the supreme awakening. It's awakening, what are you awakening to? The true nature of reality. So it's waking up to a Buddha nature. And that's what we're doing here. So this is not theoretical. This is not um, something that happened to one person once. This is actually the Eightfold Noble Path leads to nirvana. Now, the Pali Canon, the, which is what Theravada Buddhism is based on, um, actually says very little about nirvana. And it tends to use terms like unconditioned, deathless, unborn. I use those terms a lot in my teaching because that's simply my experience, and so I find it that way to express it. That makes sense to me. Mahayana teachings tend to speak more about the qualities of nirvana and use terms like true nature and Buddha nature. Um, Buddha nature was never a term that was used in the original teachings of the Buddha. Um, Sometimes original mind. So nirvana, of course defies definition by definition. You know, it's hard to define something that is beyond our descriptions, um, beyond space and time, not subject to conditions. And yet, that's who we are. That is, you know, I say our mind, but, you know, I'm not talking about our limited perspective of mind, although not excluding that. That is who we are. That's the experience uh, that people encounter as awakening. Um, it's in and of itself, it's the end of suffering. So it's another way to look at it, a way to understand it, if you will. It's a non-struggling mind that, that is peaceful. And so that is a possibility, not as a permanent fixed mind condition, but as a, a base of our mind is a place that we rest, um, kind of like the depths of the ocean. And it's, you know, as I'm talking in these terms, it's important to understand that the ocean has waves. So no being that I'm aware of, including the Buddha, um, achieves nirvana and never has anxiety or fears or discrimination. Such a, such a person would not be a human being. And so that's distinctly a Mahayana perspective. Um, but if you've met anyone like that who is sane, uh, I'd like to, to know that. I'd like to meet them. Uh, I haven't met anyone, and I've met plenty of people who have varying degrees of insight. Um, and that's an important point that we are all human beings working from where we are as human beings. Uh, you know, I like to, to quote, um, I think it's Yakasan who said something like, always slightly differently quoting him, but it's 
I feel it's very applicable to my practice, perhaps yours, you know, clumsy and confused in a thousand ways, yet I go on. You know, this is a deeply, deeply enlightened person, a very, very highly respected Zen master. Uh, and I think that's at the essence of practice and awakening, uh, the complete embracing of that. Um, I remember once uh, Aiken Roshi, a contemporary now deceased uh, Zen master, uh, was once uh, giving a talk, and he was just talking and gesturing. He was, where's my cuts, the stick? Where's my, oh, <laughs> there it is, <laughs> you know, in my hand. And we've all had that experience, right, with our glasses or you know, some, some other similar object. Um, our humanness flowers in this practice, opens up our hearts. And so as I'm talking about, you know, nirvana or um, original mind or Buddha nature, don't be fooled. It's you. It's us. And uh, this is the practice of that. And yet our tendency is to think of it as a thing. So let's be clear, there's no such thing as Buddha nature. There's no such thing as our original nature. So we're using these words as placeholders. And um, yet don't be fooled. There is such a thing as realization. And yet, inherently, realization, by the way, is not the final step in practice. It isn't. Which leaves open, what is that (laughs) final step? I don't know. I'm, 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 I'm trying to provoke you, you know. So far, I've failed miserably. <laughs> so, wait, so you said, um, okay, I, I, I'm going to go here real quick. Um, so you said uh, that the, what's the final step in practice? Is that, I didn't quite catch what you I, I didn't say... I didn't ask you what the final step in practice. I mentioned that nirvana is not the final step in practice. And I threw that out there. I mean, Dogen wrote a whole fascicle on going beyond Buddha. Okay. So are you looking for a response? I'm not looking for anything. (laughs) It's it's 25 after 7, and I have to go an hour and five more minutes. And I've said... (laughs) I've said everything I need to say. The third noble truth is the truth of cessation. So we're just trying to fill space. I don't, you know, that's, that's it. Yes. I mean, I, so I'm, I'll, I, it, it would seem that, the, that, pra, that practice is the, I mean, you know, practice comes after nirvana, just like continuous practice comes after. That's all I would say. Okay. I, I, I would say you have to be you have to be careful of that because in realization there is no practice. Okay, which seems like a kind of like relative and absolute. <laughs> which would seem kind of like a relative and absolute. It's kind of like nothing perspective. Okay, right. <laughs> it's you know it's just not like think about it when in. 
the, the words here don't quite work, but in the, in the realized mind, who would practice what? Okay. okay? Uh, and yet, practice and realization are a whole thing. Delusion and realization are a whole thing. Et cetera, et cetera. I'm sitting here listening to you, and I'm thinking, well, what is it? You know, because it's like, okay, so let's let's say, for example, that I realize I was realized, or I had—I um, don't even know what the verb is to say I have achieved nirvana. Achieved. I'll use that one. Uh, you know, I still have to go to work. I still have to clean the bathroom. Uh, I still have a body that is aging, that has some particular needs right now. And, you know, I, I, I experience fear. You know, I have to go on some medication next week. And, and the, some of the words elicit certain experiences that I feel in my body. And what I've noticed is that sometimes there's an ability to be aware of a, a particular feeling. And to notice that there is the beginning of a pattern of thought based on that feeling. And I can interrupt that sometimes and come back to where I am. That's the third noble truth in action right there. But go on. I interrupted you and I'm sorry. So, and, and you know, like, I, I try not to really get caught in what is it. I mean, you know, I mean, I think it's like it's, it's wonderful to sit there with that because it's like, I don't know. And it's like. I don't know. There's something about sitting with I don't know that, like, to me, is like, is wonderful. You know. And I don't want to know because I feel like if I do know, I'm in deep shit. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of wisdom in in what you're saying, particularly if you understand it in a particular way that I think you intend tended tended to express. Uh, there's all different ways of not knowing. And that's important to, to be aware of. Um, you know, the question that I always like to bring forth, or often like to bring forth, is how is your day different from the perspective, from a realized perspective or from a deluded perspective? Which is what you brought up or implied. And I think that's a fascinating question. How is your day? How would your life be different? Um, so I'll leave that hanging out there as well. <laughs> hey, of my day you today. have the microphone. <laughs> yeah. I certainly... You know, I would I would hope after a realization, a deep realization, nirvana, I wouldn't get myself in my mind into such trouble with moments of suffering. You know, I wouldn't I wouldn't be so ensnared to then work with it. But you said something earlier that was really interesting to me. The phrasing, we have power over our suffering because of karma. And can you say a little more about that? Because I mean, the sense that I have of that is. As you continued saying, because there's, there's, in a sense, something to work with. We can work with. And if there was nothing to work with or we didn't know that and see that and feel that, then there would be no third noble truth 
there would be no like awareness. Be no that, point. That. I mean, that power is the whole point of practice, that uh, which ties into karma. You know, so as soon as I say that, I, I'm kind of envisioning in my mind that some people in this room just push that away because it's, in one sense, it could be hard to grok, to understand, to take in. But it's actually pretty simple. When you do something, it has an effect. And do something is defined as thinking, speaking, and action. And the emphasis is on intention. Uh, and so, um, although that intention may not be clear to you at the time, it may come out of ignorance, it may come out of previous karma as well, that we're ignorant and we don't have any awareness, we're creating more suffering. So ignorance is a big part, particularly ignorance of the um, sense of um, a separate self, a sense of impermanence, a sense of the complete entwining of the interconnectivity of all existence. You know, these are three fundamental aspects, basic aspects from a Buddhist perspective of reality. Uh, and a sense of suffering. And so if, if we're creating suffering by doing, thinking, speaking, we have the option to attend to what we do, what we see, what we say, what we think. Now, we can't directly control what we think. All of us, I think, if we sit, we know that. Any questions about that? Anybody here think they can manipulate their mind. And, I mean, we do. We try. But, you know, so given that's the power. That's the power to awaken. That's the power to um, not create suffering. Is, is that we... So another way to express the third noble truth is suffering is optional, and um, it's our option. Um, now, it is more complex than that. And the Buddha pointed that out. You know, I'm, I'm approaching this from a personal perspective. There's generational karma, which in many ways is crucial. You know, we're dealing, trying to deal with that in our clumsy and awkward, our sangha goes on. And <laughs> Something that occurs to me related to this that I think is really important for me and defined kind of how I was approaching seeing suffering arise in myself today and seeing a kind of habit pattern, recognizing I don't have to be defined by my history, say, or my karma, but that sort of being in that space of, okay, what now with this particular arising, um, I really had to acknowledge that it takes time, that it takes, it takes a something other than action sometimes. It actually takes not acting, it takes patience, it takes the parameters basically. time. Yeah. yeah, it's not, it's not, you know, the suddenness, I think, of realization. It's, it's the grunt work. Yeah. So, um, you know, the way this is laid out, which is the original Buddha's teaching, is very much like an accordion. I mean, you can compress it and say everything is in the experience of uh, satori, if you will, great awakening, um, or everything is in the experience of sitting every day and uh, 
you know, accumulating, I'm putting this in a specific way, the, the merit, the karma of being present moment after moment as often as you can through your zazen and then putting it into our mindfulness and awareness. But, you know, that doesn't allow for your individual journey, your individual karma, which is not just obvious to any of us within our lifetime, right? Um, there's, there's a lot, you know, um, and, you know, we all share some universal karma aspects of, you know, some of as obvious as gender, nationality, um, um, genetics, which we're all related in some way in that we have a certain in common genetics. Um, my mind's drawing a blank, but there are other aspects of, of that larger sense of karma, which doesn't quite fall so neatly into, well, I just have to see my karma and do something a little different, and gee, that's the end of my suffering. It's not like that, because practice goes on yeah. um, beyond any point of practice or any realization of practice. You said something related, which I think was um, awakening to who we are can, you know, is part of that. And yet, you know, if we're looking at, you know, looking at cause and effect and karma arising, where does awakening to one's true nature sort of fall in that? Is that an essential part? I think it's everything. Of the Third Noble Truth. I I think it's everything in that, um, you know, it's everything and it's up to us. Um, So... Um, it's everything in that, you know, when someone passes Mu, this is my experience. My life didn't change when I was passed on Mu. I saw something. I knew that I saw something. Um, But in a way, it made me even more dissatisfied because I felt I was the same jerk afterwards that I was before. The difference is I couldn't bullshit myself anymore. I had seen something that I knew was fundamentally true. Fundamental as to, as to my own identity. And so that, you know, that was an initial little taste of something that I, I got that I could not bullshit myself. That I could choose to lie to myself, and I would, and I did, but I know I'm lying. I know that, you know, and then... As you continue to practice, you come face to face with all of your personal and generational, and ultimately they're not two different things, karma of how you um, create pain and suffering, you know, initially for yourself, that's what you care about. But then as you continue to practice, it gets more and more sensitized to include more and more people, things, places, etc. And so when will that end? Uh, well, I'm pretty confident I'm going to die before it ends, <laughs> you know, that I won't get to the end of it. Um, and in another way, I am at the end of it. All of us are at the end of it. We have everything we need. We have everything we need. And in the moments of Zazen where we forget ourselves, that's the whole of it. That is no eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, mind. That is the whole of it. But it's ungraspable. That is, you know, a mini 
moment of nibbana. You can't create suffering in that moment because you and it aren't there. And so that's how insight comes through, through our daily and Zazen, that's how insight comes when we chant with the whole body and mind and do a prostration. That's how insight comes when you mindfully work and give yourself to it wholly. But it's part of a, a woven lifetime, right, of practice. And what you get to see when you weave your, your life is where the holes in the fabric are, right? And that's the suffering. And we get to see that. And boy, the more you, you know, as you practice, the pain of that doesn't get less. What's your experience when you encounter that? Ah! You know, I can't, I can't stand myself in those moments. And, of course, that can turn to self-hatred, which is not helpful at all. But it can also turn to inspiration to address it. Uh, when we have enough trust and confidence in ourselves and in our practice. And I don't think I'm telling you anything you don't know and haven't experienced. Um, so I don't know if I've answered your, your inquiry, but it's gone where it's gone. Anybody else at this point? What's your name in the back? Jerry. Jerry. Jerry is sitting there and it looks like your eyes are about to bug out of your head. Are you okay? I'm fine. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. You know, when you, when you just said, uh, I, and I'm, I don't want to hog at all, but please you know, do. When you're like, ah! <laughs> you know, I was thinking, like, my experience is that there are encounters that I have that the repetition of them just like grates at me, it wears me down, and it's painful. It just becomes more and more painful, and that's when I change. Well, that's, you know, the ah was my particular expression. Each of us have our own. And, you know, we become more and more sensitive to, to suffering. I mean, the bodhisattva of compassion is, is, you know, starting to look through our eyes, starting to feel with our feelings, starting to um, ask ourselves as we continue to practice and deepen our practice and, you know, be willing to experience more and more of ourselves then that has to, in a way, because what are you seeing when you're doing that? You're seeing that you're not this independent person wandering through life and, you know, just trying to get through your day and get what you want and you have to go home and go to bed and, you know, do it again. I mean, that's Groundhog Day, right? Um, so the, it's the practice. It's the practice that keeps putting yourself in front of yourself and keep showing you, if you're willing to open your eyes, um, where you're, you're committing this, these suffering-caused thought processes, voice processes, action processes. But that doesn't happen in isolation. Look what it takes. Uh, you know, think about your own experience, and what does that take, you know, to, to do that? So that's why we take refuge in the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. This is not a one-person one job. It just isn't. And, and every time I see someone, not every time, that's too strong a statement, but most of the time that I see people come to some um, 
unitary awakening, you know, by themselves, which does happen, <clears throat> it usually ends up going pretty far off the rails. Or, I mean, occasionally there, there are exceptions, but for every exception, I think there's many, many, many where people have had either a spontaneous or some insight, which then becomes self-centered because where's the sangha? Where's their teacher? You know, where, and what do they want? Where are they stopping? And I've, you know, in my own life, I've seen great teachers um, with great insight, um, more than one, you know, kind of come to some places in their life where they're going to stop. And suffering results. Because these great teachers have great power and great influence. And it, and it hurts people, even though in so many other areas they're helping people. So what a lesson for somebody studying those great teachers uh, with insight that what is my job as a student? Where, where am I stopping? Does this make sense? Yeah. And, and that scares the shit out of me. Uh, and I could go on a lot more about this personally, you know, how big an influence that has been in me to, to see and how lucky I've been to practice with different teachers and, and learn lessons, some intended, some not so intended, about uh, delusion, practice, relationship, um, humility, uh, your own public relations and believing that or not believing that, you know, and so on and so forth. I wanted to just ask a question about delusion and enlightenment are the same thing. Mm-hmm. So when I come up against myself, when I see that my thought or my action or my words are creating harm, there's a pattern of it, I get an opportunity to practice that. And um, and if I don't see that, then there's no change. Exactly. Thus, delusion and enlightenment are the same thing. I wanted to just check that. <laughs> there's more to that, but that's, that's a terrific entry point to appreciate that when we say that the same thing, that they're, they're totally entwined. They interpenetrated, kind of not the greatest word, but there, you know, I like the word entwined, but even that kind of denotes a separation when there isn't. There isn't. Then the, the challenge of doing some of academic study is is always the challenge that we're, you know, segmenting things and holding it up there as this is it. Um, my experience of pre- you know the first thing I said is that the f- four noble truths they're really a a single thing, and, and they're not a thing. <laughs> they're a singularity, and you can't separate any of it out. Uh, but for purposes of a- academic study, it helps us, to, I believe, I hope, to separate it out, to study it that way, and then put it down and actually look at it in your life and, and see how these truths are in your life or not. And, uh, you know, I, when we started... You know, I, I said, I hope you're investigating this carefully because the whole thing is here, you know. Uh, and you could take any one of these truths, just like you can take any koan, and, you know, the, it all opens up through that doorway. But in particular, I mean, the Buddha said these things because they were so crucial to addressing suffering. 
And I don't see them as sequential, although you can understand the Four Noble Truths as sequential. I see them as completely a single hand, so to speak, as I entwine my hands. Um, and, and so, I mean, just think of, of each of your own practices. At one moment, you're deeply suffering, and it's, it's meaning your mind is spinning, and creating that in your anxiety or fear or grasping, right? And uh, another moment, you may be totally free of that. And another moment, you may be blocking, numb. No, no, I'm not going there. I can't go there. And maybe even attacking, you know, as your defense or hiding behind a wall. And another moment, and another moment. So, that you know, you're going up and down like a musical scale, right? And as you practice and sit more and discern this and understand this, it's important to intellectually understand it because this is the dance we're all doing, and then apply it to your practice, then you you can go through your day and begin to see how this functions. You know, for the first half of my practice life, other than the first noble truth, I didn't pay any attention to the rest of it, other than I believed I could awaken. You know, so, okay, so one and three, I kind of related to. But, you know, two and four, you know, not so much, you know. Um, and that's, that was the personality. That's what the personality needed to do until that ran out, right? That, you know, you kind of expressed it. At a certain point, you run out of of that understanding, and, and what are you running into? You're running into your, your, the set piece of yourself, and it's no longer holding. It just isn't holding. And when it's not holding, boy, that hurts. And you're faced, you know, you're right, your nose is right up against that wall of yourself, and you're making choices. What, you know, what do, what do I want? What, you know, it's the question I continually ask of practitioners. What, in the, on an individual basis, what is it that you want? And it's not important, actually, what they say to me when I ask that so directly. It's important that they discern that because it's not a fixed thing. It's not even a thing that's stable beyond the moment. But deep, it's there. And it's there in every human being. The question is whether, you know, it's freed. Just about the the point about um, enlightenment and delusion, or, or practicing enlightenment, um, or or suffering and, and enlightenment not being being the same thing. I think the um, I think the quote says that. Um, that uh, enlightenment and delusion are not separate. Not, and I remember that from a talk that Chuan gave a while back. Um, it's not that they're the same thing. It's just that they're they're not separate. And I mean, they they don't occur in a separate place. Um, just like after realization, how is it before realization? How is it? They're still the dishes. Um, there's not getting entangled after realization as much or at all. Um, 
but um, that was just responding to the to the point. Um, I do have a question. In addition to all of that, I do also have a question, which is. Um, I mean, how do you in the in the most difficult conditions, how does one practice seeing and then practice living the third noble truth where where suffering kind of just is omnipresent? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, you can you can you can choose through practice you can choose the freedom you can attain the freedom arrive at work toward the freedom to be equal to the terrors of the day um you can be in solitary confinement for years and there's monastic practices that where that is the practice and there are people that are incarcerated against their will and that is also their practice and they attain certain types of freedom. But that is in a very specific context where the stimuli are, are limited. I mean, we were just sitting down there in the Zendo. And there was fire trucks and ambulances and everyone being like, get the F out of my way with their horns, you know? I, I have to say, I'm just jumping in. And I, I know it affected negatively some people in the Zendo. Thank you. But I loved it. <laughs> I have to say that. But go on. Yeah, I was thinking at first how wonderful it was, too, in juxtaposition to the, to the monastery where it's just like, you know, there, you, you, yeah, there is there's a certain type of practice up at the monastery and attainment. And, like, you sit through a week of silence at Sashin and you come out and you're you're completely refreshed. Although sometimes, and okay, so maybe this is maybe this is where you can offer us some illumination. People coming out of the context of Sashin, is their joy just being like, oh my God, it's finally over. I get to talk to people again and like, you know, stretch and 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 whatever. Or is it something else? Or is it both? I thought you were asking a different question. I'll go I was at first. Direction. I was at okay. first. Let me address that. But that's... they're not separate. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the question I thought you were asking is what about when the suffering is so overwhelmingly present, both around you and in you? How do you practice that when you're totally overwhelmed when you um, see it in its endless form, how do you do that? Was that more towards what yes. Yeah. You know, one of the things that, that I think about often is the Buddha and his life. So you may know the story um, of, uh, and I don't know if I have it exactly right, but this is how I understand the story, that the the... Um, tribe that he was part of, the Shakya tribe, was going to war with a neighbor. And he knew there would be a lot of loss of life and suffering. And so he went and he sat under the, a tree on the road where the army would pass. 
and he was the Buddha. Everybody knew he was the Buddha. And the army came, and they saw him, and they stopped, and they turned around and went back um, and avoided in that instant the, the suffering. And then some time passed, and the same thing happened. And he again sat down under the tree by the road. The army came and went right by him, and the war ensued. So we're human beings. The tendency is, from our own now perspective, to understand suffering from our own perspective and from our own personal experience of it, which is one-tenth of one millionth of one billionth of the amount of suffering in this world. So, um, you know, this takes us back to the first noble truth. What's the first noble truth? That life is dukkha. What part of that don't you understand? You know, for a long time, for I, I first read the Four Noble Truths when I was about six or seven, and I was like, nah, that's not it. That, that can't be true. And I discarded it for a long time until my mid mid twenties when the anxiety became so much, the existential anxiety became so much that I was like, I need to figure something out. Cause like not, nothing else is working. And, and gradually I stumbled upon this practice and I, it just, it just stuck. That's just what worked. Not that it's the only thing that works, but, um, and f- so for a long time, um, because I came to this practice through the experience of suffering. I was like, yeah, everything is suffering. And so this ongo, we, we picked up the, the, uh, the noble eightfold path as a theme. And I picked up a book from the library from Thich Nhat Hanh, who's not our lineage, but is Zen. And, it's a pretty early book in his in his um, in his writing. It's from 1984, and it's 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 different chapters: the eight the eightfold noble path, four noble truths, seven conditions for enlightenment. Um, and on the point of suffering, he says that academically, for a long time, you know especially in Theravadan traditions, people have tried to hammer home the point that like everything is suffering. And what Thich Nhat Hanh is saying in that book is like, no, everything is not suffering. Actually, there are moments of joy. And if you experience them just as joy, yes, they go. But like, like if you're a carpenter and you make... Um, you make a table and it gives you a lot of pleasure and then somebody comes and like they're not being careful around it and they start scratching it up and scuffing it up. It's not the table degrading or being something other than a table or being different than what it was when you made it that is the suffering. Like the table itself is not the suffering. The degrading of it is not the suffering. It is going to rot down at some point right? It's going to disintegrate. It's going to change into another form. That is not the suffering. 
It is the attachment that's the suffering. At least that's what Thich Nhat Hanh is saying. Yeah, I'm familiar with that. And, that. and that, I mean, I don't know why I was missing that point for so long, but it, that's very new to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you have to be careful. Really careful. You know, when I teach this, generally, and this may be familiar, usually I say something like, we have the ability to take any experience, joyful, sad, happy, etc., etc., and turn it into suffering. 2016 elections. So it doesn't matter what the experience is. We, you and I, have that ability. I'm sorry? Halloween candy. I don't know what you're talking about, but where's the chocolate cake? (laughs) So I put that there so it's more relational. And Thich Nhat Hanh is speaking in a particular way and teaching in a particular way. And especially in the 80s, he, I'm going to speak personally here from my observation, he was, he, he, he was trying to reach as many people as possible and keep the door as wide open as possible. He didn't particularly work that much individually like we do in, in this particular Zen lineage, teacher-student relationship and how important that is to, to the MRO because it's not always that important in other Zen schools. Um, and so it can get very depressing is if all you know is that life is suffering, and you're going to stick there. And, um, and that's, that's going to fit in to a lot of people's psyche because if they're depressed or if they tend to look at things that way, if they don't have a basis to have any other experience of their life, um, it's not helpful to, to, you know, life is suffering, it sucks, and that's the end of it. Um, and that's not uncommon you know, outside of Buddhism, certainly. I mean, that's how you get the political and capitalist system. You know, life is, sucks, so I might as well get mine. And, you know, the zero-sum game rules, and, you know, that's it. Um, yet, when you go deep into the practice, and Thich Nhat Hanh changed the emphasis of his practice in his later years to get much deeper, he created a monastery, he you know, it wasn't so much, let's put a smile on our face and, you know, be happy. He started to really dig in and set it up so that his monastics now had some basis of monastic practice rather than, and I I can go on and on about his lineage. But the point I'm making is when you look for yourself deeply, deeply, say through Shikantaza, when the mind is crystal clear, wait, 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 hold on, hold on. When the mind is crystal clear and completely quiet, and there's a voice, a word, in that great hall of silence, you realize that that voice is not your own. It's not what? Not your own. Do you understand what I just said?
Is that a rhetorical question? No. <laughs> I'm going to say what I said before, which is that it's aggregates. Well, I don't know what that means in this context. It's that, I mean, I don't know. I don't want to tether it apart too much into all its component parts, but like, where would you put, where would you put the agency? Where would you put the tone of voice? Where would you put the function of wind and vibration and physics? Where would you put? Let, let me jump in here. I'm talking about mind here. Your mind, my mind. When there is a thought. Mind as the organ of perception? Yeah. Well, you're right. Mind is the organ of perception that's perceiving all of those things. But there's a tendency also to, to go beyond or, or jump over or skip over, rather, and be like, oh, yeah, that's my voice, and not consider everything else that makes your voice your voice. That's not what I'm saying, though. That may be true, but that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying from the perspective of the depth of your non-being, if you will, words are difficult here, really difficult. Anything that's conditioned, that word, which seems crystal clear to you, is suffering. Every thought that you have is a separation from reality. Every word that you speak is a separation from reality. Every action that you do is a separation from reality. And so from the perspective, from an awakened perspective, how will you live? How will you live? If that's true, and I'm relating my experience, but not just my experience. If that's true, how will you live without creating suffering? And the response to that is that is the bodhisattva vow. That's the response. That in this relative world where life is suffering, it has always been suffering. And I think it's pretty good prediction that it will continue to be. What is my personal responsibility to this? Seeing that every thought is a separation, everything that is is going away. And so everything that is is temporary, and as it's existing, it's non-existing. So from a practice perspective, so now I'm speaking from a little different perspective, not from an awakened perspective, but from a practice perspective, which is... Because I'm not awakened. Which is a deluded perspective, in in essence. um, Then I turn it towards Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. That's my response, and what that means is very particular to me. Uh, You know, and very particular to you, meaning I turn it towards the enlightened mind, I turn it towards the teachings of the Buddha, I turn it towards my teacher, I turn it towards the Sangha, I turn it towards the precepts, I turn it towards Buddha, I take whatever comes my way, all the suffering, to the best of my ability, clumsy and confused, to the best of my ability, and I turn it towards the Dharma. That's how you wake up in this world where life is suffering. That's the way. Now, how you as an individual with your karma and your stuff, and I don't mean you alone, this is all of us, do that is yours. 
because all of these words and the teachings of the Buddha and the Eightfold Noble Path and the Eight Gates of Zen and none of that's going to help you when it comes down to it. At a certain point of practice, it's just you. You have to figure out how to address you. And there's lots of help. That's the turning towards the three treasures. But that's just a way of saying how to use the scaffolding that the Buddha presented us with out of his own Anuttara Samyak Sambodhi, Complete Awakening, and try to express it in a given time and place so that it's applicable 2,500 years later, and now how will you do it? And that's the whole point of this practice. How will you do it? Not how did the Buddha do it. Not how did your teacher do it. All of those are important and helpful, but not you. Carefully. (laughs) Very carefully. Because we tend to create suffering in the name of addressing suffering. So what I've seen in myself is, um, yeah, when, when I arise, when a point of view arises, typically that point of view comes with um, an agenda, and that agenda um, brings with it suffering. And the more um, attuned I am to that, the more of the suffering I feel, um, there are... Um, times where there's just a lot of joy um, and there's a joy that maybe comes out of my practice and being and then there's certain things that go right in my day and somebody said something that I'm like, oh, you know, my ego gets a little boosted and I'm riding on that and then I think, oh, you know, I'm attaching and then I see myself, I'm attaching to all that I'm attaching with all that and um, I can enjoy that joy a little bit, but, but as I, you know, take a deep breath and focus for a second, um, I realize my attachment to that, to the joy. Um, which I guess in at moments I see it, it's, it's, I see it for what it is. Um, but I'm, um, not necessarily happy to let it go. Who is? Um, yeah. All right. Well, it's important not to overthink this also. You know, when it's joy, just joy. When it's pain, just pain. When it's suffering, sometimes it's just suffering. I, I want to go on because I have some other material that I think is important for us to get to. Okay, Um, or I'm not honoring you um, in covering this. So I'm going to pick up a a thread here, um, some of which we've talked about. The Buddhist teaching is that suffering is temporary, and we can go beyond it. We, I think, have all had momentary glimpses of cessation of suffering, but of course, usually we try and grasp it and lose it. When the mind quiets and is still, if you've had that moment-to-moment experience in Zazen, then, of course, what happens? Um, But yet that's also 
important in having that because it confirms that it is that is possible. And if that is not happening, it's worth examining your zazen. It's worth examining what your practice is, what your relationship is to Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. Um, because there's a lot of ways to do this practice, and it's, again, very personal. And it always, however we do the practice, always makes sense to us. But, you know, the, the hallmark of doing the practice is, does it actually, in some way, begin to both, both allow us to quiet down and to, to have less suffering in our life, personally? Um, As you continue in practice, the cessation of suffering becomes you yourself, and the gap gets narrower. I've spoken about this already. It's not mystical. There's nothing mystical going on here. Um, It's simply your own experience. It's simply you becoming who you fundamentally are, um, with less stuff between that and yourself. Um, And, you know, it's, it's interesting. You can see this happening. At least I can see it happening from my perspective in the Dyson room. You know, people come to practice, they're suffering, they're lost, or whatever, the whole spectrum of humanity. And as they sit, and that's the crucial point, as they begin to sit, things happen. They quiet down. Initially, there's lots and lots of questions, right? Lots and lots of questions. Um, and the karma of questions, of course, is more questions. And there's a moment for me as a teacher of real joy when the student comes in and looks me in the eye and says, I don't think I have any more questions at this moment. Now, they will, of course, but that's okay. But they've reached a point in their practice where they've realized, not even intellectually necessarily, that the karma of asking questions is more questions. And I'm not saying don't you need to exhaust that in order to have faith and trust in what you're doing. You, you need to. So that's important to ask the questions. Um, but also it's important at some point to, in spite of all the additional questions that will still come up in your mind, and you'll need to ask them, to begin to really dig in past the questions, to see what lies underneath the questions. Sometimes people feel that they're obliged to come into Dyson and have a question. Um, they're not. <laughs> There's no obligation. It doesn't matter. Doesn't matter what you come in with. We'll explore it or not. You know, it's all. It's all about you, uh, and your practice. And remember, there's only one thing going on here, which is easy to forget in the midst of our life, because this is so different than the rest of our life. The only thing going on here is waking up, but not waking up in the small sense. Waking up in the largest sense that we can possibly do in this lifetime. And so, you know, we have an examination of our conditioning in the beyond fear of differences and the whiteness. And and we're only just beginning to touch it. And we're not even really looking at some of the other major ways that our society and our training have brought us to um, understand ourselves from a gender or sexuality or other ways. I mean, we're looking at these a little, and everything ties in. It's all important. But this is part of the picture, part of our karma. 
that we, we are obliged to, as would-be bodhisattvas, to begin to respond and to do the best we can with, with ourselves. And ourselves as human beings are limited. Our life is limited in that perspective. Um, you know, I, I have a sentence here. Can you encounter the sensation of suffering without being within our imagination or ideas? but as reality itself. And that goes back to the statement, which I didn't plan on saying. Yeah. Can you imagine, uh, can you encounter, sorry, the cessation of suffering without coming from our imagination or ideas? And this relates to what I said before about being present in complete silence, as complete silence, in the midst of the deepest possible zazen. There's no imagination there. None whatsoever. And so from the perspective of a self, we cannot imagine cessation of suffering. We can't. That's the self imagining more of the self. Um, And so you know, that kind of limits this discussion today <laughs> in a way. And yet it's important to talk about this. It's important to, to have an intellectual understanding. It helps us. Uh, it it kind of locates us on a map, as long as we understand the map is not the actuality of it. And the next thing it says that I wrote is, through following the path, it's possible to create cessation until we become cessation in the wholeness of a compassionate life. It's possible. And this is not a statement of absolute perspective. It's a practice. It's a practice through following the path. It's possible to practice stopping cessation until we become that. And that's... that kind of travels right into a life of compassionate action and thought. It, it's the same thing. And so now I, I want to get to kind of the concluding piece, which is what you have. So what does the third truth rest on? And that handout, I thought, was one expression of it. It rests on the thought of enlightenment on the desire to address suffering. So I'll read it. It's a bit long, but it's perfect for Halloween. So um, let me read it. Why don't you put the, it down and let's see if it, I can get it to resonate in your brain a little bit, as it does in mine. There is the thought of enlightenment, bits and pieces of straightforward mind, the mind of the ancient Buddhas, everyday mind, and the three realms, which are one mind, Daidoroshi, when questions about this would come up, would often say to the person, how many minds do you have? When people say, well, I'm two minds, this, I'm going in that direction, and no, I'm going in that direction, and I can't. Sometimes you study the way by casting off mind, Sometimes you study the way by taking up the mind. Either way, study the way. 
with thinking and study the way not thinking. So this is a much more poetic expression of turning towards the three treasures. Whatever comes your way in the midst of overwhelming suffering, how do you turn that towards the three treasures? It may be just to stand in the ferocity of the wind of suffering. It may be. And that is the paramita. Usually we say it's, it's a patience. But um, it's much more subtle than patience is too dualistic for me. It's, um, it's forbearance. Forbearance, just like the Buddha sat underneath the tree as the army marched past him. It's forbearance. So conditions do not arouse it, and knowledge does not arouse it. The thought of enlightenment arouses itself. This arousing is the thought of enlightenment. So he's talking about bodhicitta. Thought of enlightenment, the desire to realize yourself, which already the words to me don't reach it. Because having that desire as a fundamental condition for your life, you can put it down. You don't need to linger there. It's, that energy is there. It's going. And that's just the way it is. So Dogen says, conditions do not arouse it, and knowledge does not arouse it. The thought of enlightenment arouses itself. This arousing is the thought of enlightenment. It's about, you know, there's a, I, I almost brought it in, there's a wonderful poem on commitment. Uh, and, and basically it says, when you commit to something, fully commit to something, the whole world conspires to support you in that commitment. Everything comes your way to support you in that commitment. When you make that decision. And think about it. If, if, if you decided to devote your entire life to earning a million dollars, I'll bet most or all of you in the room could do this. If every waking thought was that, I think you'd probably get there. Whatever a million dollars represents to you. If, if that was the heart of it. The thought of enlightenment is neither existent nor non-existent, neither good nor bad nor neutral. It's not the result of past suffering. Even beings in the blissful realms can arouse it. The thought of enlightenment arises just at the time of arising. It is not limited by conditions. Again, I keep coming back to when we're overwhelmed by suffering. It's not limited by suffering, my suffering or your suffering. There is no limitation to this. This is our life at that point. We turn it towards the Dharma no matter what the circumstances. Living, sickness, old age, death, your death, my death. That's it. It's the whole thing. At this very moment, when the thought of enlightenment is aroused, the entire universe arouses the thought of enlightenment. It's basically what I said before. When, you're, when that's there, everything conspires to it. 
Although the thought of enlightenment seems to create conditions, it actually does not encounter conditions. That's an interesting koan. The thought of enlightenment and conditions together hold out a single hand, a single hand held out freely, a single hand held out in the midst of all being. Thus, the thought of enlightenment is aroused even in the realm of hell, hungry ghosts, animals, and malevolent spirits. The folks wandering the streets today, this evening. Bits and pieces of straightforward mind mean all the bits and pieces, moment after moment, are straightforward mind. Nothing, nothing of us is excluded from the thought of enlightenment. It holds all of us. Not only one or two pieces, but all bits and pieces. The thought of enlightenment bleeds into enlightenment itself. That's not there. That's my quote. It's kind of like, you know, if you've stepped out into a dark night and you can't see the stars. I do this every night when I put away the chickens when I'm home. And gradually, as I walk down the road, my eyes adjust and I can see a star, stars, shadows light in very discreet little ways. I can see, and you may know that you don't, in, in darkness, when you look at something, you don't look directly at it. You look peripherally, because that's how your eye physiologically works in black and white at night. You don't see by looking like you do in daylight. It's all peripheral vision. And by the time I click the bolt on the chickens and walk, start to walk up. It's about 100 yards. Everything's visible. Not like daylight, but just kind of as it is. It's different, completely different than daylight. It's nightlight. That's, that's how practice works. Stars are visible. You can see what you could not see before. Questions? Um, I have nothing more formally to present. Clarifying question about something you said earlier. Um, you said something about not being able to control the mind. Not being able to. To control the mind. And when you say that, The mind think th- thinks thoughts, and that's kind of just what happens, and sometimes there's silence. Um, but I also have the experience that, like, for example, this morning, um, I was going about getting ready to head out of the house, and I was kind of grumpy, and, and then I had, like, you know what? I don't really want to do it like this today. Like, I'm going to have a nice day. <laughs> and so that to me is, is I don't want to call it control, but it's like a, a tuning like of this like karmic, what feels like a karmic cycle and being like, eh, 
Well, you can certainly put your attention in different directions and cultivate that. Mm. Uh, can you do me a favor right now? Can you be completely sad and just be overwhelmed by sadness? <laughs> <laughs> I might be able to, but I'd rather not. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> do you get my point? Now we can put our attention to where that we. Can you reliably make your mind do what you want it to do? I don't know. I don't know the power of mind at this point. Well, yeah, I, you're not answering my question. I I really don't know. Okay. I'm well, confounded by you, like the nature of what it is to. You should look world. at that. Yeah, because you know, have you ever been in a funeral and not been sad? I also don't want to answer that question. <laughs> I have a lawyer's card in my wallet, and you can. <laughs> the point I'm making is that at least my experience is that my mind is not controllable by my will. I cannot, in a reliable way, make myself feel a certain way, have certain feelings. I can certainly cultivate them. You know, if I look at certain pictures, it's going to, you know, if I look at violent pictures, that will create a disturbance in my mind. If I look at sexy pictures, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, or read certain things. Well, that's, I'm sharing with you as it is. Um, I'm creating my karma and I'm well aware of that. Um, My wife won't, you know, every time Donald Trump comes on TV and he, she she shuts off the sound, she won't listen to him. Because it disturbs her so much, she doesn't want to be disturbed that way. You know, she, she just, you know, bothers the heck out of me. I want to hear what this idiot is saying. <laughs> what the president is saying. I forgot what recording. Um, but, you know, and I want to hear it because there's a purpose to me listening to, to what my enemy is saying. It's not out of disrespect or out of hate, but I, I want to know what's going on. But I wouldn't want to do that all day. Um, so we can influence it. But my experience is I cannot control my mind. That um, I just can't, and I don't get too excited about that. I just practice it. I let go of thoughts that aren't helpful. Aren't helpful to what? Aren't helpful. <laughs> aren't helpful to what? What's my purpose? To awaken. Yeah, that's simply how I look at my life. Do I always do that 100% of the time? Of course not. I'm trying. So this kind of dovetails. I, um, I've been reading um, Bhikkhu Bodhi on the Eightfold Noble Path, and mm-hmm. um, that's been really resonating, right? And like you can't control your mind, but if you're really diligent about it, you can see a lot of stuff. You and can what? You can see a lot of stuff. You see what you're doing. And um, <laughs> it's pretty scary, isn't it? Uh, yeah, like, yeah, that's kind of a bummer. And that's been really like, I mean, if you turn away from that, you're, that's a choice, too. And it, it, um, it's been really hard the past couple of days. You Good. Know? 
Good. It's important to see you. You know, this is like when people start doing Zazen and they, they say, you know where I'm going with this. You know, I have so many more thoughts doing Zazen than I did before. Well, got some bad news for you. <laughs> you know, for the first time in your life, you're seeing it. And that's also the equivalent of life is suffering. I mean, this, this is where it's at. This is where it's coming from. A mind is endlessly producing this stuff. And, you know, 99.9% of it is self-directed, self-affirming. Um, even when it's in the name of goodness and whatever, you know, that you may think it's a positive. Uh, and, of course, when you look close enough and you see when we are generous, so we are giving, how much of that may be self-referential or so subtle. And there's no end to this. And so you can't get there from mind itself. You, you can't manipulate your mind. So, well, I won't have those thoughts. I'll have these thoughts. I mean, we can do that a bit, re- referencing what you said before about, you know, can we control our mind? We can certainly cultivate a mind of generosity and compassion. Um, and that's called practice. That's what we're doing. Um, but are we in control? Well, I don't know about your experience, but I'm not in control of my mind because it's karmic. And I understand that. And, you know, I have a lot of thoughts I'd much rather not have that, you know, I just would be very helpful to me in my life not to have those thoughts. Uh, But I have them. And um, I don't think some of them are going away anytime soon. So now what will I do? That's the question. Um, when we were talking about the Eightfold Path, we were talking about uh, karma of thoughts. We spend a lot of time talking about like thoughts and what a you know what is right thought, and do thoughts have karma? And I think you you said that early on in your practice, you kind of refused to believe that thoughts had a karma. And I'm I started I've been I've been pondering this all on go and. Um, kind of like like what Stu was saying, like just really noticing how how many thoughts I have, and then what are the karma of those thoughts? And um, during uh, session, it all kind of came together for me. Um, I was sitting really clear, and then all of a sudden, I had an anxiety about aging that manifested in my memory, losing my memory, and and then immediately. So, so this this was just more of a, a feeling of disease mm-hmm. that then turned into a thought, and mm-hmm. then that thought turned into another thought. And I was like, "Well, I could buy that memory game that I used to have as a kid. I'll order that on Amazon. Maybe I'll break <laughs> precautions, <laughs> and then when I get back from session, I'll start playing that memory game. And like this thought kind of, and then I just stopped it." And I was like, what was the karma of that thought? And then I I could see how I was setting myself up for suffering. Like, I get this game. I don't play it as much. My memory keeps getting worse. Then I feel guilty. Like, just keep. So so in that moment, I've kind of froze. I froze the thought. I acknowledged the feeling. And then I let the feeling go. And, you know, and then moved on with, with the practice. But then every thought I had, I just kept seeing as suffering and except 
you know, thoughts that came from selfless generosity seem pretty okay <laughs> if it was really selfless. But um, and then I started to get a little a little sad because I realized that every every thought I have is going to lead to suffering. I, I've said this before a number of times. I was I don't know how exactly how old I was, ten or eleven years old, um, and in tune with suffering because of my life ever since I could remember, uh, had some pretty significant trauma associated with it. And, and so I, I had a sensitivity to my thoughts and how shocked I was when in a moment I realized that every single thought I had was about myself. Every single thought. And I actively looked for thoughts that wasn't. And I could see, even at that young and kind of stupid age, you know, that even when I covered it up with, you know, concern for, it was really about me. And um, that shocked the shit out of me. It was, I was stunned. And I was stunned partially because I didn't see a way out of it. Um, And, you know, that led to consequences which were not positive at that time in my life. I was very rebellious. And since I couldn't see a way out of it, that had consequences until later in life when I could see a way out of it or using that in a positive way. But, you know, that's the life of suffering. That's it. And so, you you know, you can understand suffering from a lot of different perspectives. You mentioned Thich Nhat Hanh's teaching. Um, I don't know what he teaches in the monastery or when he teaches deep dharma um, or when he did teach deep dharma. But I suspect it wasn't so smiley-facing because you, you really have to come to grips with this in order to, I think, in some way, it doesn't necessarily even have to be conscious, but at some point in order to wake up, and you know, wake up is such a vague, what, what does that mean? But in, in order to go deep within yourself and to start to flower as a, a would-be bodhisattva, you have to come to grips with that. This is the truth of it. And, you know, you walk down the street and wherever you go, this is what you see if you look close enough from a, at least a certain perspective. Um, and, you know, if that's all you do, then, you know, life really sucks. But that's not my perspective. That's... If, if what is all you do? Just see that there's suffering. What I'm actually doing when I'm walking down the street is attending to the circumstances around me to see if there's anybody I can help or connect with or say something or not say something or be present with. That's what I'm actually doing. But that comes out of an awareness that life is suffering from the ordinary perspective. Yes, microphones. Um, we're, we're coming to a, a time frame here. Okay, I'm, I'm going to try not to bug out right now. But, um, <laughs> um, I'm, I'm relatively new to, to, to this practice. Um, it's been a little bit under a year since I started doing Zazen. <clears throat> what I'm hearing tonight is uh, I, I'm trying to absorb what everybody's saying, um, but I'm hearing one thing that recurs, and that is it seems like to cease suffering, to put an end to it, it requires willpower. I mean, I just keep hearing, you mentioned attending to your, to your negative thoughts, your suffering, and 
and, and trying to change, change that. And when I'm doing zazen, I've noticed that you're right, I can't change my mood just like that. I can't, I can't be sad just, um, just by deciding to be sad. But I can attend to my thoughts. And it takes, when I'm doing zazen, I notice that it requires an, an amount of, of willpower. And I've, as I've been reading about zazen, it, it, it involves a building up of concentration. I, I've been curious about that. And, and I'm curious about how, that, how the power of concentration that we're working on in zazen relates to this cessation of suffering because it seems like it does take effort. It takes it does take will. It takes it takes a a very deep kind of determination to even decide to do zazen in the first place. I mean I'm very busy in my, in my life. I get you know distracted by whatever, you know, uh, TV shows or going out drinking and I don't want to do Zazen. I, I want to do something else. So, but it takes a it takes an effort of, of will to decide to sit there. And when I'm, when I'm sitting there, thoughts and not be distracted. And that takes a, that takes full power. So I guess my question is: Does it just come down to is, is Nirvana achieving Nirvana just a matter of a strong will? Is that really what it, what it, what it means? Because that's kind of what I'm hearing tonight. It's 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 Attending to your thoughts and and, and attending to attending to uh, practice and and that, that 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 takes a lot of determination to do that. Yeah, so it does yeah. you're absolutely right. You know the the classical formulation of that is uh, um, great determination. Great absolute. So great means boundless. You know, great faith and great doubt. Doubt here means questioning. So those are, you know, the classical uh, perspectives of the essentials of Zen practice. So it's not casual. It's this is not something you're gonna, you know, Zen practice generally for most people is not like anything else they've encountered before. And and what we have to draw on uh, within ourselves often is not something that we may have drawn on before in a, in, a, in a regular way. We have, in some ways, I mean, to, to do something successfully in life, uh, be it in business or profession or school, or you know, to, to accomplish things, you have to have some aspects of this. Um, but really, this is under the name bodhicitta. There, there is a desire that every, you know, the quote I use is even a weed in the sidewalk grows to the light, wants to grow to the light. So everything that's alive, and I could make an argument that even if it's not alive, uh, wants to fulfill its wholeness. Um, and so we live in a society which I think it's fair to say more than ever before is designed not to do that, right? Designed to seduce us into the things you say. And you're the only one that encounters, you know, resistance to sitting zazen or distraction or, you know, it's a very long line. Right? It's a very, very long line. It's universal. And, and you know, that comes back to the question I'm always asking people. Uh, what do you want? So what do you want is a discernment. It's, it's, a, it's an open question. And it's a question that at some times in your practice, it's going to, oh, yeah, yeah, I want that. I want to practice. I want to. And then you run into yourself. Uh, 
which who is guaranteed, guaranteed multiple, multiple, multiple times to run into yourself. Because uh, the practice is designed to do, to bring up yourself and see yourself as it is, because that's what's causing the suffering. And, you know, imp- implicit in your question is that you have to have, what you have to practice with is yourself. That's all you got, who you are, and a sensitivity, one would hope, towards being kind of embedded as yourself, what that creates in your, as your life. And if there is a sensitivity, then that, go there. That's the doorway in. And, you know, it's not going to reveal itself just like that. It's, it's not a cheap date, you know, if we still think in those terms. At least, you know, I don't know. Um, I'm so out of it. <laughs> People even date? I don't know. Anyway. <laughs> Uh, this is non sequiturs. Um, you know, what do you want? And, and so that's a question you should keep asking yourself as you explore this practice. And um, there's no hurry. There's no, you know, don't take anything that you're hearing tonight and say, that's where I should be. Uh, take the next thing in front of you that is real for you and investigate that. That's how this practice works. There's... We're not in any hurry, and we're not taking any shortcuts, because every shortcut will come back to bite you in the ass. That's a guarantee. I've seen it over and over and over in this practice, that when you skip over a part of yourself and leave a part of yourself out, it's, it's not going to go well for you, eventually. right? Or the whole time it's going well, it's not going to go well for you, if you leave that part out. All right? All right, thank you, everybody. Uh, Can we chant the four vows? Thanks for listening. You can find more Dharma Talks, interviews, and events at zmm.org slash media. While online, please check out the Jizo Project, our multifaceted initiative to make Zen Mountain Monastery more accessible and welcoming to all. Learn about the new Jizo House building and accessibility enhancements to existing facilities that are just two aspects to this exciting endeavor. Find out more and see how you can get involved at zmm.org slash Project. That's J-I-Z-O-P-R-O-J-E-C-T.